Hi, this is Oliver Stone, and I've just done Books on Pod with Trey Elling about my memoir, Chasing the Light. It was a very interesting set of questions Trey asked, and I think you'll enjoy the show. Hello, readers. John O. Brennan is the former director for the Central Intelligence Agency, a role he served from 2013 until early 2017. This came after operating in a variety of capacities within the CIA from 1980 to 2005 and serving as an assistant to President Barack Obama for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism from 2009 until 2013. And he's just written a book about it all. His memoir is called Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. John, thank you for the time. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Thanks, Trey. So, John, you were born in Hudson County, New Jersey in 1955 and lived there for most of your first 22 to 23 years before moving down here to Austin for grad school at UT. What were you like as a kid? (laughs) Well, I think I was a bit shy. I very much was interested in sports, played baseball and basketball and football, went to Catholic elementary school and high school, grew up in a very loving Irish Catholic family. And I was studious. I enjoyed my schoolwork and was very fascinated with American history and things like that. So I think I was a normal kid growing up in a blue-collar neighborhood in North Bergen, New Jersey. Yeah, you were so straight-laced as a kid that you even wanted to become the first American pope at one point. But at 16, one of the brothers from your Catholic school took your English class into New York City to see a clockwork orange. How did that change things? (laughs) Yeah, well, I had always planned to be a priest, given that I was grew up in such a strict religious family. And so if I was going to be a priest, that's why I thought I'd become a first American pope. But then in Catholic high school, we had Christian brothers, and they really were instrumental in having me open up my mind to new experiences, as well as just questioning life and my place in it. And When Brother Richard brought us over to see Clockwork Orange, as they say in my memoir, it was a bit of a controversial action on his part, certainly, because uh, Clockwork Orange at the time was viewed as a rather racy film because of its sex and dystopian images. So I just felt that that type of experience, as well as some others that I had during my high school years, brought me out of my strict cocoon and, again, exposed me to other things in life. Speaking of exposing yourself to other things in life, you eventually decide to go to Fordham for college. The summer after your freshman year there, your cousin Tom invited you to work with him as a food for peace officer in Jakarta, Indonesia. How life-changing was this first international experience for you? It was absolutely life-changing. I had been to Ireland with my parents two or three years before that, but it was very similar to my experiences in the States in terms of being in a Western English-speaking country. But when I went to Indonesia, and I spent a couple months out there, and I traveled around quite a bit, it really opened my eyes to a very, very different culture, different people, different languages, ethnicities. And I really came to then appreciate what it means to be an American in this big, diverse world of ours, particularly since I saw so much impoverishment, as well as just people who were sort of eking out a daily existence. And it was far different than my growing up in New Jersey. And so it really allowed me, I think, for the first time to understand how special it is to be an American, but also just how richly diverse this globe of ours is. 
That week-long trip to Bali sounded like a lot of fun, too. <laughs> it was. I took the train and ferry over to Bali and spent a week there and surfing and motorcycling around the island. And again, having the opportunity to interact with locals of all different perspectives and backgrounds and religious traditions, it really was just a wonderful, wonderful experience for an 18-year-old. A year later, you were accepted to study abroad at American University in Cairo in Egypt. What were some of the firsts that you experienced there with regard to Arabic, basketball, and hashish? <laughs> yeah, it was my first time in the Middle East. I really didn't know much about the Middle East other than what I had learned in my Fordham University classes. But when I arrived in Cairo and went to school at the American University in Cairo there, it really was quite an opportunity for me, first of all, to learn a very, very beautiful language, which is Arabic, my first foray into studying language, which I have done many times throughout my life. And then playing basketball at the American University in Cairo, it was a great experience for me. The basketball court was in the middle of campus in downtown Cairo. And I played according to international rules and with the Egyptian, Palestinian, French, and other teammates. And then, as I mentioned in the memoir, I had the opportunity to smoke hashish there. The way that we smoked it was either in a hookah, hubbly-bubbly, or we would sprinkle it in cigarettes, open up the cigarettes, sprinkle it in, roll the cigarette back up, and smoke it. And so that was my experience with doing some type of mind-altering drugs. Sounds pretty incredible. So how did you end up here in Austin at grad school at the University of Texas? And what was Austin like in the mid-1970s? Well, I didn't know what I was going to do after I graduated Fordham. I had thought about law school, but then I said, well, I don't want to become a lawyer for some corporation. And I was pursuing graduate schools. And my professor at Fordham mentioned that the University of Texas at Austin had a good Middle East studies program. It received some Libyan oil money in the 1970s. So I applied to the Department of Government, got into the doctoral program, and wound up getting married in New Jersey in the meantime. And my wife and I arrived in Austin back in September or August of 1978. I was there the previous year, but got mono after spending about six weeks in Austin, so I had to return. But Austin in the 1970s was wonderful. First of all, it didn't have the traffic it has today, and I've been back many times, including recently over the past couple of years. It didn't have all the high-risers, and this was before the dot-com boom that really saw Austin explode in terms of population and development. But it had Barton Springs, Zilker Park. It had Armadillo World Headquarters, where I saw the Ramones, as well as some other folks there. It was just a great place to live and to be a young student. And so my, Kathy, my wife, taught at some of the local elementary schools. And we spent two wonderful years in Austin in the 1970s. You were in Austin at a time where it truly was this weird place that we all still strive for it to be. Yeah. I remember going to Austin City Limits, so Doug Kershaw, huh. uh, and just walking downtown 6th Street and going to different clubs. And it was such a mix of college, town, state government. You can go out by the lakes. There was just so much to do in Austin. We never, ever got bored. And we had talked about possibly settling down there, but my plans changed. 
what led to you landing your first job with the CIA and what sort of tests did they put you through in just determining whether or not you were a right person for the agency? Well, in my last year in Florida, I saw an ad in the New York Times, CIA had put out. And so I sent in my rather scant resume and went into New York at the CIA interviewing office there. And I received an application and the interviewer said I could fill it out and send it in if I decided to go to graduate school once I was nearing graduation. And so when I was in Austin, Kathy said, why don't you fill out that application, which I did. And I went up to Virginia, D.C., to go through a battery of tests, medical, psychological, polygraph, and others. It's a very thorough review that the CIA does before they hire someone into the CIA family, understandably so and rightly so. And I took Arabic tests as well. The polygraph was probably the one that I was most concerned about, but thankfully I got through that also. Were there any harrowing moments with the polygraph test? <laughs> well, there were a few. When the polygrapher asked me if I had lied to anybody recently, and I admitted to him that I had told my mother the weekend before that I went to church on Sunday when I really didn't, and the polygrapher was aghast that I would <laughs> tell an untruth to my mother about going to church. But I think the one that was most concerning was when he asked whether or not I had belonged to any subversive organization or organization dedicated to the overthrow of the United States government. And I was about to say no, but then I remembered my vote in 1976, my first vote in a presidential election, when I was already very dismayed over partisan politics in the United States. And when I went into the voting booth, I flipped the lever for Gus Hall, who was the usual Communist Party candidate, presidential elections. I joined about 57 or 58,000 other Americans that year in voting for him. And so I knew my Catholic guilt was going to make the polygraph machine go wild if I said no. So I explained to the polygrapher that I voted for Gus Hall. He kept a stern face and asked me if I had any other interactions or affiliations with the Communist Party. And I said no, it was a one-off and it was just a protest vote. And to his great credit and to the CIA's great credit, he said that my vote for the Communist Party candidate would in no way affect my application for CIA. So I felt that his saying that really reaffirmed in my mind that the CIA was an organization that despite being involved in some controversial actions over the years, it was an organization that I wanted to join, belong to, because I thought it would give me an opportunity to give back to this great country of ours, as well as to find out more about this big, wonderful world of ours. And sure enough, your first day at the Central Intelligence Agency was August 5th, 1980. The church committee hearings in 1975 had created a pretty negative public perception of the CIA by uncovering things like COINTELPRO and MKUltra. What was the public opinion of the agency like when you got there? And what was morale like amongst your fellow employees? Well, it was I was there at the waning days of the Carter administration and Director Stansfield Turner was the director of the CIA at the time. And I think the agency was going through, as you said, some churn in the aftermath of the Church and Pike Committee hearings and the revelations. And I think it was trying to rebound from some of the controversy and the harsh criticism levied at the CIA. And so when Ronald Reagan was elected then and took office in January of 1981 and Bill Casey became the CIA director, 
I think that revitalized in many respects the feelings inside the CIA because Bill Casey was somebody who was very close to Ronald Reagan, somebody who had previous intelligence experience when he was in the Office of Strategic Services during World War II because that was the CIA's forerunner. And so those eight years, my first eight years at the agency, I think we saw an upswing in CIA's activities, engagements, as well as relevance to the president. And perhaps this speaks to that point, but early on in your tenure there, you're sent to the CIA's training facility at the farm in the Virginia Woodlands. You had a tense exchange with an instructor during your work there, a man that you've nicknamed Jack in the book. What happened and how did it resonate with you? Well, I joined the agency in the operations directorate. This is the directorate that trains case officers who go out around the world undercover and recruit individuals to spy against their countries on behalf of CIA and the United States. And so when I joined the agency in the operations directorate, I had some early misgivings about whether or not I was cut out for it. In fact, you know, even the CIA interviewers had questioned whether or not I was extroverted enough to do that type of work. And so when I was at the farm and we had a class on how to handle agents, again, the foreigners who were recruited as spies, Jack was talking about how to convince agents to stay on the CIA payroll, if you will, even when they have concerns about their security or that they may be uncovered by the local services. And when one of my classmates asked about what do you do when one of your agents wants to leave, he said, well, you try to convince them to stay and then you remind them that they sign papers or receipts for their pay or whatever, implying to the agent that they would be subject then to potential blackmail if they decided to sever their relationship with the CIA. And I said, I spoke out that it sounded like blackmail. And Jack didn't take kindly to that. And he said, you know, you have to do what you have to do because, you know, this espionage work is important. And I really did not like that message. And it made me think long and hard about whether or not I wanted to belong to that part of the CIA that would engage in in such tactics, including potentially blackmailing or at least threatening to blackmail those foreigners that the CIA recruited to spy for us. So that convinced me I need to get out of operations and I wound up going into the analytic directorate. I think this might have been before you made the full-on switch to analytics, but the CIA's disguise unit is exactly what it sounds like. And you had to go through that department at one point. What was the most memorable costume that you ever had to wear? (laughs) Well, I was a escort bodyguard for an individual from the Middle East who was a recruited spy for CIA. And he and his family were in the Northern Virginia area. And I was responsible for bringing them to shopping malls and the airport and so on. And one day I had to pick them up at the mall and I had to wear a disguise whenever I would go out with them as a way to protect my identity. And the disguise consisted of a a wig and glasses and darkened my mustache and eyebrows and wore a lift in my shoe. And as I was hurrying to get back to the shopping mall to pick them up, because I was delayed, I quickly put on my disguise and went to the shopping mall. And I noticed that when I was walking through the shopping mall, people were 
kind of staring at me funny. <laughs> and I got the source and his family, and we got back to the car, dropped them off at the hotel, and I noticed that they were looking at me a little bit strangely as well. Well, when they departed my vehicle and I pulled into a empty parking lot nearby to remove my disguise, I looked in the rearview mirror and noticed that in my haste, when I put on my wig, and the wig had sideburns with stays in them to keep them pressed against my side of my cheeks, I unfortunately had put my glasses under the stays as opposed to over them. And so the stays and my sideburns were basically going out from my head as opposed to down my cheek. And so it looked like I had wings and it was very embarrassing. And I'm sure I turned red as soon as I saw what I did, but it was one of my, <laughs> it further convinced me that maybe my life as an undercover espionage officer was not what I was, should pursue. I think that was a pretty good indicator there. A little bit more serious now, who was Bob Ames and what does he mean to you? Bob Ames was a legendary CIA case officer who spent most of his career in the Middle East, working in Yemen with the Palestinians. He was a very, very good Arabic speaker and Arabist who became my boss in the analytic side. It was very unusual for an operations officer to go into the analytic directorate. But Bob Ames was not just a proficient spy. He was also quite cerebral in many respects and knowledgeable about the Middle East. And so he became the head of the what's called the Office of Near Eastern and South Asian Analysis. And this was before I went off to Saudi Arabia my first time in the early 1980s. And so Bob Ames was somebody who would test me in Arabic and talk to me about Saudi Arabia before I go out there and someone who I really admired. And when I was out in Saudi Arabia in Jeddah for the two years, 82 to 84, it was in the spring of 83 when we got word that the embassy in Beirut was bombed by Hezbollah. And Bob Ames was on just a visit to Beirut at the time. He was in the stairwell when the bomb went off, and he was killed immediately. And I was in shock when I was reading the cables that provided the names of the deceased and saw his name because I thought he was back in Washington. And he was about six months away from retirement, a beautiful family, and as somebody who I have always looked up to, as somebody who really epitomized what it means to be a good ethical case officer, as well as just a real national security expert and intelligence professional. In late 1988, as a result of completing several major analytics projects, you were made the chief of the issues branch within the CIA's Office of Near Eastern and South Asian Analysis, leapfrogging a number of co-workers who had Asian experience on you, plus you really had no managerial background to speak of. How did that go initially, and was there some sort of seminal or epiphanous moment in your understanding how to properly lead? <laughs> well, yeah, I was an analyst in the branch one day, and then the next day I was made the branch chief, and I didn't have the training or experience that I needed because there were a number of individuals in that branch who were older than me that were in fact senior to me in terms of grade. But for whatever reason, I was tapped to be the branch chief. And I was not a very good branch chief, certainly in my first year or so. I wound up rewriting papers. I was rather officious in my dealings with the analysts. And the epiphany was when one of my analysts, who was a good friend and someone who I worked with closely over the previous couple of years, 
he pulled me aside in the hallway one day and basically hit me upside the head with a two by four and said, stop being a jerk. <laughs> and to remember the skills or the traits I had while I was an analyst that made people think that I'd make a good leader. And it was a very, very important message that was sent to me. And as a result of that, I then adjusted my leadership manners, tactics. I talked to the branch. I acknowledged, admitted to them that I had made some mistakes and I felt badly for them. And I pledged to do better. And with that experience, it really helped turn things around, not just for me in that branch, but also for the subsequent positions that I held in the agency to remember that I needed to treat people as individuals, not try to turn everybody's analysis or work product into what I think mine you know, looked like, and just be much more supportive of the people that I had the responsibility of leading. In 1994, you were asked to become a daily intelligence briefer for the agency's first customers. What exactly does that mean? Well, the CIA has put out for many, many years called the President's Daily Brief, the PDB. And that PDB is written primarily for the President of the United States, but it's also provided to the Vice President and the senior officials who are involved in national security. So maybe two dozen or so senior officials receive it. And so I was asked to be the daily briefer of the PDB for President Clinton and Vice President Gore as well as some of the other seniors at the White House. And it was a real experience for me in terms of not just looking at Middle Eastern issues or terrorism issues, which was what I had done previously, but to be responsible for briefing the president, vice president, and others on any global event or issue that merited their attention. And it was a rather intimidating experience because Going into the Oval Office and being the CIA's representative to the president is quite a weighty responsibility. And it was something that, again, allowed me to grow as an intelligence professional. Going to fast forward just a little bit now through your second experience in Saudi Arabia, your second trip there. You took your family for three years. It's very tempting to have you tell the Arlen Specter story, but I encourage people to go buy the book to check that one out. In March 2001, you became the deputy to new CIA executive director, Buzzy Krongard. What advice did he offer up the day that you learned of this new arrangement that really helped you out? Well, Buzzy Krongard was an outsider. George Tenet, who was the director at the time, brought him in to be a counselor and then asked Buzzy to be the executive director because of his outside experience. He was in the banking business. And I had worked with Buzzy just a short while before I was asked to be his deputy. And he pulled me in his office and he gave me some, a lot of great advice. But one of the things he said to me was, John, I give you permission to make a mistake. Hmm. I said, what do you mean, Buzzy? Because it was rather unusual guidance. He said, I want you to know that you've been put in this position because of the trust and confidence that George and I have in you. And what I want you to do is not worry about having to come back to me all the time and asking permission to do things. You have certain responsibilities and we need to make sure we carry out those responsibilities in a timely fashion. So don't worry about making a mistake going forward. Said, okay. He said, but now just a caveat here, he goes, 
make sure that you understand exactly what can hurt the agency in terms of decisions that you make. And he used the nautical reference of above and below the waterline. So the agency is a big organization. We can take a lot of shots above the waterline. But if you're going to make a decision, and if it's the wrong decision, and it's at the waterline or below it, in terms of if your decision is the wrong one, raise up the flagpole. Come in and talk to me or talk to George, because that requires an organizational decision that it's important that others get involved in. And so I was very much appreciative of his understanding. And he says the sign of a good manager is to know what decisions that they can make and what decisions they need to raise up the chain of command. And so I've used that experience and Buzzy's lesson to me with others that I subsequently led, because I do think it's important for individuals in positions of responsibility to understand that they have the responsibility to act and decide things on their own, but they also need to understand when they need to bring others above them into the decision. You also did a great job of writing about what things were like for you on September 11th, 2001 and the days and weeks after. Again, people are going to need to go buy this book to check that out. I am curious to know, John, why do you consider the Rendition, Detention, and Interrogation Court Action Program the most controversial program that the CIA has ever been involved in? Well, it was a program that the CIA had no experience in implementing or standing up in the aftermath of 9-11 when it was clear that a number of al-Qaeda terrorists were going to be detained around the world and there needed to be the opportunity to debrief and interrogate these individuals. The Bush administration decided that the CIA would carry out a covert action program whereby these terrorists would be detained and then interrogated under the CIA's auspices. And again, the CIA had no history of running a detention program, it had no history of being engaged in these types of interrogations, especially ones that would employ enhanced interrogation techniques, very controversial ones, including things like waterboarding. And so even though the program was lawful because it was authorized by the President of the United States, it was deemed lawful by the highest legal advisory body in the executive branch, which is the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice. It was briefed to the Congressional Oversight Committees. So it had all of the necessary features of a lawful program. However, I think as many say, and I agree, the program itself, in terms of those enhanced interrogation techniques, were not consistent with what I believe are America's values. So. Again, it was lawful, but I don't think it met the ethical, principled, and value standards that I think the CIA and other government organizations need to abide by. On the flip side, what was TTIC and why is it such an important venture in your career? TTIC is the acronym for the Terrorist Threat Integration Center, which was stood up in 2003. And this was an action and a decision by President Bush to try to address some of the shortcomings in information sharing that existed prior to 9-11 between CIA, FBI, and other organizations and departments involved in fighting terrorism. And so TTIC was stood up, and it was the concept of trying to integrate and have in one location the experts, the databases, the networks, the authorities of various organizations 
so that there could be better integration of effort and better correlation of bits and pieces of terrorist-related information. Because when things were in FBI or in CIA and they were pieces of a puzzle, unless you have those pieces together in one place, you're not going to put together the puzzle. And so TTIC was stood up by executive order. I was its director. And it was this integrated unit. And it ultimately became the National Counterterrorism Center as part of the government's reorganization of the intelligence community. And I became the first interim director of the National Counterterrorism Center. And so that was my last government experience and job during my first 25 years in government. What was the unpublished op-ed, You're Wrong, Mr. President, and how did this leaked draft affect you professionally not long after? Well, I was in the private sector for three years, and one day I was going into work. It was a Saturday morning, and I heard President Bush give his radio address, and he was claiming that Saddam Hussein and Iraq were basically closely affiliated with al-Qaeda. And I knew that was not the case. And I knew that he was trying to continue to support the argument that the invasion of Iraq was a result of Saddam Hussein's terrorist ties, as well as WMD capabilities. And this was before the election in 2006. And I wrote up a draft op-ed, basically said, you're wrong, Mr. President taking issue with all of his statements in that radio address, or most of them. And I submitted it to CIA for pre-publication review, something that all CIA officers are obliged to do after they leave the government. And that draft op-ed, I decided not to submit for publication because I didn't want to be seen as getting involved in the week before an election, be seen as partisan. So I never submitted it. However, that draft made its way down to the White House, which was wrong. The CIA is not supposed to do that. And I was contacted by a former colleague from the White House who said that the White House people were quite upset with me for writing it. And I was appalled that that draft got down there. And as a result of that draft and my sentiments expressed in it, I think that was used to deny me some future jobs that were proffered to me during the Bush administration. So it was just a very unfortunate event that that draft op-ed, again, that I never submitted for publication, got down to the White House. You're being kind referring to it as unfortunate. That was pretty despicable that it happened that way. And you're right. It did deny you some other opportunities in the not-too-distant future. One of the things that I really enjoyed learning about you and reading this book is that you tended to stay away from partisan politics during your career, having helped and criticized both Republican and Democratic presidents. Why did you ultimately decide to advise Barack Obama leading up to the 2008 presidential election? Well, I, I like to believe I'm still nonpartisan because I voted for Republicans and Democrats and one communist. <laughs> and so I was really impressed with Barack Obama when I heard him speak in terms of his vision for this country as well as just his life story. And so I had reached out and said to some folks, I'd be willing to provide whatever support I can. I wasn't involved in the campaign, but I was asked to provide some intelligence input to his advisors, which I did. I never met Barack Obama when he was running for president, but I felt that anybody who was going to help this country lead, I was willing to share my experience with them which I did. And 
So again, he was somebody who impressed me as having a vision for this country that very much aligned with my own. And ultimately, you became President Obama's assistant for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. You write about transitions between presidents in terms of the intelligence community shifting their intel support from the outgoing administration to the incoming one to make sure that the new national security officials at the White House understand the capabilities, limitations, and value of U.S. intelligence. I'm curious, though, what are those limitations? Well, the limitations in terms of intelligence and national security, I think, are many. The United States is the world's superpower in terms of having the political, economic, military power that is really unrivaled when you take that together. But despite all of our power, we still have limitations as far as how we can shape foreign events, setting aside the question of whether we should shape foreign events. But I think Afghanistan and Iraq are good examples. Our military basically can defeat any enemy on the face of the earth. But our ability then to reconstruct a country after a military defeat is rather challenging. Certainly, the United States led the reconstruction of Japan and war toward Germany after World War II. But trying to change some of the politics, the experiences, the cultures, of countries in Middle East and South Asia is really quite, not just daunting, but virtually impossible. So President Obama, when he came into office, there were some people who were part of that administration who I think had rather idealistic ideals about what the United States should do overseas, which were admirable in terms of what they hoped for. But I think the expectations were a bit unrealistic and even naive because of just how difficult it is to change societies from their histories of non-democratic governments and practices and you know underlying events. It was interesting to read just how determined Obama was to find bin Laden. Sure enough, it ultimately does happen. Most everybody has seen the picture by now, one that includes you in that tiny room in the depths of the White House on Sunday afternoon, May 1st, as you, the president, vice president, and several others are watching this raid play out. What was it like being in that moment? Well, it was nerve-wracking, to say the least. The planning that went into that raid was just flawless. And they went through a number of contingency plans in the event something went wrong. And indeed, when we saw the helicopter get pulled down because of the air vortex in that compound, they right away went to a plan B as far as ensuring that the assault was going to continue basically unaffected. It did. So there were a number of key points in that assault plan that we knew were going to be rather dicey. And so we kept holding our breath and listening and watching and hoping that everything was going to go well. One of the most nerve-wracking parts for me, though, was after the raid was basically finished and bin Laden's remains were being brought back to Afghanistan, we had a couple of helicopters with a couple dozen assaulters that had to make their way back across Pakistan at the dead of night, across difficult terrain, and the Pakistanis were aware something was going on and they had launched some of their fighter jets and their air defense radars were on. And I was very, very concerned that something might happen to one of those helicopters. And even if we got bin Laden, if we lost a dozen or more Navy SEALs, that would have been 
disastrous. What was the scene like outside the White House later that night? I guess technically in the early morning hours of May 2nd. Yeah, it was the lights were on in Lafayette Square, the park right across the street from the White House. There were horns blaring, people cheering, people chanting USA, USA, CIA, CIA. So when I emerged from the West Wing of the White House after midnight and saw and heard that, it really, it was the first time I think that day I became emotional because I guess that was just the culmination of a very, very intense, intense period of time. And so I walked up to the White House gates that look out onto Lafayette Park and just stood there for a moment and the tears started to to roll down my cheeks. After Leon Panetta went from CIA director to secretary of defense, you were initially passed over for the CIA director job, but you ultimately did get it. You wrote about a certain pride that you always felt in working for the CIA, but the CIA was a bit antiquated in a variety of ways when you came into power. What did you do to try and modernize it? Well, I had the good fortune throughout my career of serving in different parts of CIA operations analysis, management staff. I served rotations outside with the State Department as National Counterterrorism Center. I also had four years of experience at the White House where I was a recipient of the CIA's intelligence. And so I felt as though I had, in some respects, unique experiences that I wanted to make sure I was going to leverage when I became director. So I was not going to be a caretaker director. I wanted to position the agency as best I could for its next 70 years of history and not just rest on the laurels of the past 70. And the agency structure really had not changed much over the course of its history by the time I got to be director. And the world of intelligence, indeed our world, had changed fundamentally as a result of the technological revolution that we've experienced. And also I was always an admirer of that integration model whether it be at TTIC or NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center, as well as the Department of Defense when it went through its integration experience back in the 1980s with the Goldwater-Nichols. And so I overhauled the agency. We created what's called mission centers that are focused on regional and functional areas, bringing together the operators and the analysts and the technologists and the cyber specialists and open source experts as a way to ensure that those respective capabilities that existed in different parts of the agency were going to be able to empower each other. And so it was a controversial reorganization, but it has lasted and lived on after my departure. You authorized the CIA to get on Twitter in 2014. Why? (laughs) Again, Twitter is part of the new reality. Social media platforms are widely, widely used by individuals and organizations, and it's a means of communication. So I want to make sure that CIA was going to be part of that environment, that ecosystem that is out there in the digital realm. And so I approved the CIA having a Twitter account, and it's a means of conveying information to the, not just the American public, but to the world. And I do think sometimes that the CIA throughout its history has been overly, overly secretive about things that it need be. And the more it can be transparent about what it does with appropriate protection of source of methods, I think there'll be fewer rumors and conspiracy theories about what the CIA is doing. The first tweet was something that I think had a little bit of fun with that. We can neither confirm nor deny that this is our first tweet. Did you write that? (laughs) 
there were about five tweets that were drafted for my review. And there was a tweet about being able neither to confirm or deny the tweet. So, uh, yeah, I approved that one. I don't know if I tweaked the, the language in it, but uh, yeah, that was the one that I selected. You do a great job of deep diving into the Russian hacking of the 2016 presidential election, but you also pointed out early on in this analysis that this was nothing new, that U.S. intel had encountered similar cyber attacks in 2008 and 2012, but what distinguishes what the Russians did in 2016 from those other examples? Well, I think in the past, the Russians were always trying to gain insight and intelligence on what their respective campaigns were doing, who were the most influential as a way to better understand what might happen in the election, as well as who they need to be concerned or worry about. And they were also trying just to undermine, I think, the integrity of the presidential elections. But in 2016, it was clear that Vladimir Putin had authorized a more intense effort with a greater scale and scope than previously, and especially that they were favoring one candidate over the other. That in addition to trying to denigrate and to bloody Hillary Clinton, because they did believe she was going to be elected, and they wanted her to be bloodied by the time she was inaugurated, but they increasingly were trying to help Donald Trump across the finish line, believing that although he was a dark horse, at least initially, as he became a Republican candidate, he had a pretty good chance of winning. And they clearly were trying to tip the balance in his favor. And unlike in previous elections, we didn't see that one-sided approach that the Russians were taking. Would you have handled anything differently about the Russian hacking in 2016, knowing what you do now? Um. I've asked myself that question many times, and I've been asked that question. President Obama was really adamant that we, CIA, FBI, others, do nothing that would either give the appearance or the reality of helping Hillary Clinton, because as Barack Obama was the head of the Democratic Party, he didn't want to be seen as using his administration to favor anybody in the election, especially the Democratic candidate. And so I think the feeling in the White House was that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election and not to do anything at all that was going to raise questions about the fairness and the integrity of the election because of something we might have done. So I agreed that we shouldn't do things such as rattle the Russia's cyber cages because I was very concerned that that could spark an escalatory series of cyber attacks between Moscow and Washington. And on the eve of a hotly contested election, I just thought that was going to really undermine both the reality and the perception of an election that had maintained its integrity. To say that January 6th, 2017 was a physically, mentally, and emotionally taxing day for you would be quite an understatement. What happened on that day? Well, my father had passed away the week before. He was almost 97. And so uh, December of 2016, uh, Kathy and I went back and forth to Jersey a number of times to be with him at his bedside. But he passed away. And then in early January, when we were going to be briefing Donald Trump up at Trump Tower, myself and Jim Comey, FBI director and the director of national intelligence, Jim Clapper, it was on the day of my father's wake. And so I flew up to 
New Jersey, Newark Airport with Jim Clapper and the head of NSA, Mike Rogers. And we went over to Trump Tower and met Jim Comey there. And we spent the hour or more briefing Donald Trump and his incoming team. And then I had to leave there and go over to New Jersey to my father's wake. And my mother was infirm at the time, tried to be with her, console her. And so it was an, an emotionally draining day. And the day started off, I had to brief along with the others, the gang of eight, the leaders of the Senate and the House of Representatives. And so it was going from these deep substantive meetings and discussions with the most powerful people in the US government, the incoming administration, to my, my father's wake and his burial the next day. So it, it, was, it was an emotionally uh, draining time for me. And finally, John, the last chapter and overall title of this book is Undaunted. Why? Well, as I said, I, I fancy myself still as nonpartisan. I'm not affiliated with either political party. And I haven't spoken out the way I have <laughs> the past three years previously. And that's one of the reasons I pulled back that op-ed back in 2006, because I didn't want to be seen as a partisan. But Donald Trump, I think, has just trampled the tenets of our democracy. His lies, his deceit, dishonesty, his total lack of empathy, his self-centeredness, his continued pursuit of things that will advance his own personal, political, financial interests at the expense of the country's interests, I find to be the antithesis of everything that I believe a president should stand for and should be like. And so it's not a question of my having differences of policy, and I certainly do with a lot of his policies, but it's the total lack of decency, dignity, character, that I feel that he really is a snake oil salesman and unfortunately has been shoveling stuff to the American people. And I just, having worked in national security and government for nearly 34 years, all the things that I believed in as far as what America stands for and what an American president should be have just been obliterated by Donald Trump. And I feel also very, very angered, not just disappointed, but angered at how the Republican Party has just collapsed under the weight of his actions and how people in Congress who I thought had some integrity and intestinal fortitude have just kowtowed to Mr. Trump. And so I knew that Donald Trump was going to continue to just engage with the American public, including in the Twitter sphere. That's why I decided to have my own personal account in Twitter. So I didn't want to cede that environment to him. And I have spoken out and I'm glad I have. Although people criticize me as a former director for doing this, I am now speaking out as a private citizen. I'm speaking out as an American who is really quite disgusted with what has happened in the White House and our standing in the world and how Donald Trump has fueled division, polarization, and hate and anger in our country. And so I just long for the day when he is going to be long gone and that we're going to be able to get back on track as a country, both for our own sake as well as for the sake of the global community that really does, I think, need the United States to play the leadership role that it is uniquely qualified to play. 
I have to admit, it angered me to learn that he had denied you your own personal files, your own personal records from your CIA days to try and ensure the maximum ability to be accurate for this book. I do also appreciate the irony that the world's biggest Twitter troll can't take a little bit of criticism on a platform he thinks he owns. <laughs> yeah, I know. He is, well, typical of, of authoritarians. They are very thin skinned and sensitive. And I am so, so happy that. So many people are speaking out against him because he certainly is deserving of it. But despite his denial of my gaining access to my records, again, I, I remain undaunted. <laughs> Very well put. John O. Brennan is the former director for the Central Intelligence Agency, a role he served from 2013 until 2017. This came after operating in a variety of capacities within the CIA from 1980 to 2005 and serving as assistant to President Barack Obama for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism from 2009 until 2013. And he's just written a book about it all. His memoir is called Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. John, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this great book. Thank you, and it's clear that you have read it, and I really appreciate that. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a five-star rating and review. It helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.